Good morning to each one. I greet you in the name of Jesus, the one who suffered much for our salvation. For the message this morning, titled The Message, The Garden, The Suffering, and The Cross. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. It'll be the first passage I'll be using. The Garden of Gethsemane was a place of great importance to Jesus. It's referred to in all four Gospels as a place where Christ retreated into deep prayer in a time of agony before his arrest and crucifixion. Gethsemane is mentioned only twice, specifically mentioned only twice in the Bible. The references to it are made throughout the New Testament as a place Jesus traveled to. So as the evening began, after Jesus and his disciples had celebrated the Passover, they came to the garden. In the Gospel of Matthew, it notes that Jesus took three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him to a place called Gethsemane so he could pray. There he wrestled in great sorrow with the torture and humiliation that he knew was before him. Mark's account, which we'll read here in a little bit, also notes that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him to a place called Gethsemane where he prayed in deep distress, overwhelmed about what was to come. Gospels note that Jesus told his disciples to sit here while I pray. He acknowledged his sadness, asking them to keep watch. As my soul is exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death, Jesus walked a bit further from his disciples there and sank to his knees and cried out to his father, God, saying, Abba, Father. He said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was distraught, but yet he was committed to the Father's will. Matthew's gospel tell, tells us he fell with his face to the ground as he prayed earnestly. That mental anguish. He prayed throughout the night, periodically returning to his disciples to find them sleeping. The gospels recount Christ chastising them for their weakness and inability to keep watch during this time of deep need a time when he prayed so earnestly. The Gospel of Luke said his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The most important impact of that night was the willingness of our Savior to die on the cross in our place in order to pay the penalty for our sins. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When Jesus returned a third time to his disciples, he appeared resolute, ready to face the path his father had laid before him. Jesus asked his disciples, are you still sleeping and resting? He said, it is enough, the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And then Judas, one of the twelve, 
arrives with a large crowd armed with swords and clubs and with a kiss betrays Judas betrayed Jesus and the Son of God was seized and arrested. One of Jesus' disciples, John says, is Peter attempts to defend Jesus, drawing his sword and cutting off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. But after his all-night agony of sorrow and prayer, Jesus knew what needed to happen. He would have no violence or resistance. Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then he went with the crowd willingly. And at that, as Jesus had predicted, the disciples deserted him and fled. There in the garden of Gethsemane, he felt sorrow and great distress over the hardship he would need to endure. He sought out the quiet and privacy of this special place so he could go before God and beg for a reprieve. Though not a reprieve from the will of God, which Jesus was committed to. As I said, he implored his disciples to watch, to stay awake and keep watch. They couldn't even do that for him. Jesus asked Peter, could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Jesus' reference to the coming sacrifice and pain by referring to them as this cup are thought to be a reference to the cup, the blood of the covenant. This blood is Jesus' blood which he said at the Last Supper was poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus was with his disciples at their last major gathering before his arrest and crucifixion. Jesus did not merely share a, loyal, a holy meal with his closest friends. Rather, he shared with them what was about to happen. He was going to be a living sacrifice, offered as a debt payment for sin, for the sins of all mankind, he revealed that he would be betrayed by one of them, that the disciples would scatter, and that even Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed the next morning. So I'm going to read Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 22. Not going to make a lot of comment on this. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and break it. And gave to them and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus saith unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, That this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John. 
and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth him sleeping and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh a third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up. Let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. Now I invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. And we'll look at the suffering of Christ. I want to make this connection with it being the Father's will that our Lord suffer for our redemption. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll start at verse 9. The suffering of Jesus was part of God's plan for our redemption. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Jesus suffered death for us. God became man in the person of Jesus Christ, and he suffered. Here the Hebrew writer outlines for us how that the sufferings of Jesus benefited you and I, and how it completed him as the Savior. Verse 10, for it became him for whom all things, excuse me, for, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. I want to read that in the NIV. It says, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. We see here that it was appropriate that God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, and that is the benefit that you and I get. This word captain, or this word author, in the NIV means pioneer in the Greek. The one who went before us in our salvation was made perfect through suffering. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Jesus was completed through suffering. There was something about Jesus' suffering that created a completeness, a fulfilling of the work of salvation. Now, in the next verses, I want to highlight for us how the sufferings of Jesus makes complete His work as Savior. Verse 11. For He, excuse me, for both He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified, that's us, 
are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, that's us believers, saying, I will declare thy name unto, that, to, unto my brethren in the midst of the church, while I sing praise unto thee. And again I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. So the first thing we see here is through his suffering we are made family. Because Jesus suffered, you, are not, you and I are made brothers and sisters to Christ and children of God. We were made children by putting our faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. John 1, 11 to 13 says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They are born of God, that we might be made family. He suffered that you and I might be related, first to him and then to one another. Through suffering it perfected his saviorhood. It completed it and benefited us. We were the beneficiaries. Now let's look at the next completion that came through Christ's sufferings in verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, and that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. We spoke of the Garden of Gethsemane. There was also another garden. It was called the Garden of Eden. Mankind fell in the Garden of Eden, and sin entered the world. Then death came as a result. And Jesus destroyed that power by destroying death itself. Satan is all about death. In John 8, what does Jesus say about Satan when he talks to religious leaders? John 8, 44 says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So Jesus makes it clear to us that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Now I want to look at another way that suffering of Jesus may complete his work as Savior, is that Jesus destroyed the devil and the power over death. Death has not yet been eliminated, but the power of death has been destroyed. Jesus made a statement to the Apostle John in Revelations, Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18. And, what, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. A statement of power. He has the keys of hell and of death. Christ suffered for that key. Death was never meant to be a part of God's creation. The sin of man brought it into play. And a man had to suffer 
And God took care of that by becoming a man and he suffered that he might win for you and I the key of death. Verse 15, Hebrews 2, also relates to death. It says, And delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So in Christ's suffering, he delivered all those who were slaves to their fear of death. Not only did he conquer death and has the keys to it, but he also delivers those who would otherwise live in fear of death and become enslaved by it. He suffered that you and I might be set free from the dominion of that kind of fear. Jesus suffered that you and I would be free from the fear of death. In verse 17, we see he became a merciful and faithful high priest through his suffering. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So what is a high priest? The Old Testament priesthood was a picture of what Jesus was going to come and do. One day a year, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go through the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy place. He would bring the blood of animals and pour out that blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of Israel. Twice, a day, the, twice on that day, the priest would go in, first for his own sins and then for the sins of Israel. The priest goes in and represents. You want somebody representing you that knows what you're going through. So Jesus Christ suffered that he might be made for you a merciful and faithful high priest. He knows about your desires. He knows about your hurts. He knows about your fears. He is now representing you and I before the Father. That is what the high priest does. They represent you. And Jesus is our perfect representative before the Father because he knows and understands the things that we deal with. And he can represent us accurately. He can re represent us mercifully and faithfully as our perfect high priest. Last part of verse 17 says, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Jesus came to propitiate. Through suffering, Jesus removed the wrath of God for those who believe. Jesus literally took on himself God's wrath for you and me. And because he suffered, he turned that wrath aside. In his suffering and death, our debt was satisfied. It was paid in full. Because he suffered, we can have peace with God. Many people in this world are beside themselves because they don't have that peace with God. They were created by God. They were created to know God and to love and worship God, but they don't know Him. They don't love and worship Him. 
So there's this void in their lives, and they have no peace. So Jesus suffered to take away the wrath, that we might have that peace with God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For they themselves declared, declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus suffered much for you and I. Then in verse 18, the author of Hebrews gives us the last thing I want to point out here about his suffering. It says, For in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. He can help us when we are tempted because he understands our temptation. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus understands. He knows our temptations. Because Jesus himself endured temptation. The word sucker here means to come to the aid of. How much easier it is to help someone when we ourselves have gone through similar trials. Christ as man has fully suffered the greatest of trials. He too comes to our aid when we face trials. So the suffering of Jesus was a part of God's plan for our redemption. Christ has conquered death for us. And this concept of a suffering Messiah was a stumbling block to the Jews. The suffering of the cross was an integral part of God's redemptive plan. Christ was made perfect through the suffering and death. This letter was written to Christians who were being tempted to leave the gospel behind and go back to legalism under the law. All right, we looked at the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus gets arrested. They lead him to the high priest. The chief priests and council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death, and they found none. And many bear false witness against him. I want to pick up reading in Mark 14, verse 60. Mark 14, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. 
And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, Prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. And then Peter denies Jesus. Jesus is then brought before Pilate. He says, I find, no, I find in him no fault at all. Now I invite you to book of John chapter 18. I'm going to read the John's account. I'm going to start reading verse 39 through verse 30 of chapter 19. Verse 39. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, and said, Hail, king of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing, this crown of, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answering, answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me, excuse me, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. Now we have the cross. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. 
Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, Therefore, among themselves, let us not rent, rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now therefore, excuse me, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciples standing by, whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciples, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now there was, a, there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. I want to share with you the words of a song that we sing. He was nailed to the cross for me by Frederick Graves. What a wonderful, wonderful Savior who would die on the cross for me, freely shedding his precious lifeblood that the sinner might be made free. Thus he left his heaven to glory to accomplish his Father's plan. He was born of the Virgin Mary took upon him the form of man. He was wounded for our transgressions, and he carried our sorrows too. He's the healer of every sickness. This he came to the world to do. So he gave his life for others in redeeming the world from sin, and he's gone to prepare a mansion that at last we may enter in. He was nailed to the cross for me. On the cross crucified, for me he died. He was nailed to the cross for me. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse 26. Speaking of the bread and the cup. Bread and the cup are emblems which symbolizes the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord. And as we partake of these emblems in communion, we witness to their union with Christ and demonstrate the fellowship of the brotherhood, the body of Christ showing forth his death till he comes. The ordinance of communion is breaking the bread, breaking and eating the bread to symbolize Christ's body, broken for us and drinking of the cup to remember the blood he shed for our sins. Communion is a time of remembering Jesus and the suffering he endured on our behalf for our sins. Matthew 26, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. It says, This is my body. In taking the bread, we're called to remember Jesus' broken body for you and for you. 
So as we reach out our hand this morning to take the bread that is broken, remember Jesus' suffering and especially his physical suffering in the body. Remember his agony in the garden. His sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. Remember his unlawful arrest in the middle of the night. Remember his unfair trial and the false accusations brought against him. Remember Judas' betrayal, Peter's denial, and the disciples abandoning him at his greatest hour of human need. Remember the brutal treatment that he received from the soldiers. Remember the spitting, the mocking, the blindfolding, the beating with fists, the slap in the face, the crown of thorns pushed into his skull. Remember the whipping and scourging by the Roman soldiers, the carrying of the cross. Remember the nails piercing his hands and his feet. Verse 27, he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. Jesus didn't unwillingly go to the cross. He went to the cross for a purpose. He went there to die in our place so that our sins might be forgiven. It says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So in receiving the cup, we are called to remember the blood of Jesus in the new covenant. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, who by his own blood entered into, in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. It was established that night. It was sealed that day when Jesus, with his blood, sealed the covenant. The cup is a reminder of Jesus' death. It is a symbol of Jesus' blood poured out in death upon the cross. In Scripture, when you have the pouring out of blood, it symbolizes violent death. And so the cup is not only a reminder that Jesus died, but that he was killed. He didn't die as a result of an accident or sickness or old age. He was executed for a crime that he did not commit. He was killed in one of the most painful and brutal methods known to man. He experienced the nails driven into his hands and his feet. He experienced hunger, thirst, exhaustion, and a slow suffocation upon the cross. The cup is a reminder of all of this. So as we take the cup this morning, let's remember Jesus' death on the cross. We're to remember his suffering. We're to remember his death. We're to remember why he did it. It was for our sins. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So as believers in Christ who partake of the one loaf together, we're reminded that Christ lives within 
each of us through the Holy Spirit. And so we have that fellowship, one with another. Christian fellowship has both a horizontal and a vertical dimension to it. And when we share in fellowship with Christ, we share in the Lord's table to share in Christ's Christian fellowship together. This is also a time to anticipate Christ's return. Jesus proclaimed the coming of God's kingdom in Luke 22. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do shew the Lord's death till He comes. So today we not only look back in history to Christ and the cross, we also look forward in time to when Christ will come again. We remember Jesus and what He has done for us. And we look forward to Jesus and His soon return. My prayer is that each one of us would be found faithful. May the Lord bless. You can turn with me to John chapter 13. I want to read a few verses there to begin with. Most of you don't know it, but we were privileged this morning to have Sister Joan Shaver and Brother John Smith with us outside the door, so we were glad they could partake that way this time. This is a familiar passage. I'm just going to start in at uh, verse 12, reading from the New King James Version this morning. <coughs> so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent him, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I, your Lord and teacher, have done it. You would be blessed if you do it. This morning as I was thinking about this, the, I was thinking about the, the apostles and the, the other writers of the New Testament, and uh, I mentally, anyway, I asked myself, well, did they get it? Did they get what Jesus was teaching, and did they uh, teach it too? Well, for the most part, you don't have a lot about washing feet. Uh, at least one place Paul mentions that uh, that should be done, or was done by uh, widows indeed, to travelers. I uh, considered reading you excerpts out of the Martyr's Mirror from a number of Mennonite confessions of faith about feet washing, but I didn't, decided not to. Uh, they were still, at least some of the time, saying, wash the traveler's feet when they came. Well, their shoes weren't so great back then either. 
But anyway, we do it as an ordinance to remind us, to remind us of something. What do you find in the New Testament that uh, shows that Peter and James and John, well, the Apostle Paul, I'm going to talk about particularly this morning, knew what Jesus taught and lived it and taught it themselves. Well, rather than go through the whole New Testament, I just picked the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, if I put a title on it this morning, I'd call it On the Low Road with Paul. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, Paul's dealing with a, a problem in the church. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfect, joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, that no flesh, whoops, sorry, I'm used to reading out of my side-by-side uh, -side Spanish and English that I skipped the one column. Let me try this again. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Clo's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided, and was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he goes on for the next three chapters, actually, into chapter, well, through chapter four, dealing with this situation. And he goes at it from a number of different angles, but I would like to go over to chapter four, verse one. Remember, they're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Paul says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And we can't read it all, but in part what Paul is saying is, we're just servants. Don't go setting us up on pedestals. <laughs> you don't do that to servants. Verse 6, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. So these people were looking at different leaders, and uh, you had one faction over here and say, I follow Paul, and the other said, I follow Peter, and well, it almost sounds like children saying, Fords are best, Chevys are best, and uh, okay. Paul says, don't do that to your leaders. <laughs> We're just servants. So Paul remembered. Verses, uh, well, yeah, down in verse 9. For I think that God hath displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death that we have been made a spectacle, a theater to the world, both to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We've been made the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. That's just us apostles, you see. We're nobodies. 
y'all are somebody. And he did sort of uh, tell them they needed to be nobody too. Later, chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, he's dealing with another problem in Corinth. Christians were going to law against each other. And he tells them they shouldn't be doing that. Well, go down to verse 7. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated and by a brother to boot? Why are you fighting? Why don't you just submit and let them have their way? Take the low road. Just be a servant. Do what's best for them. Chapters 8 to 12. Paul deals with another problem. 8 to 10, sorry. This thing of meat offered to idols, and some people had a conscience against it, and some people knew better and knew there was nothing wrong with it, and so they could eat it. And Paul reminds them that knowledge puffs up. You don't go by knowledge. That's not what you base your decisions on. Chapter 8, verses 8 to 13. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you of knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul says, I'm a servant. I'm going to be careful. And chapter 9, chapter 10, well, chapter 9, let's just read a little. Am I not an apostle? He gives an example. I'm an apostle. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not apostle to others, yea, doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to receive from you for what we do? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Don't I have some rights as an apostle? And yes, it concludes that he does have some rights. But down in verse 19, and before that, he says, I give all that up. In verse 19, for though I am free, though I have all these rights, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. I gave up my rights to serve instead. And sometimes we're inclined to go on to the next verses and point to those, to the Jews, I became a Jew and all that. But verse 19 is where it's at. <laughs> he tells why he did it. I gave up my rights so that I could be a servant to all. And then in chapter 10, he finishes up kind of on this subject of meat offered to idols. 
Oh, verse 27, if any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. And then comes the rhetorical question that he knows somebody is bound to ask. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? But he concludes, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Yeah, we have some rights. We have the right to be served even sometimes. But Paul says, give it up. Give up your own conscience. Let your brother's conscience rule you even. And we say, no way, that's stupid. And on and on we go. But are we gonna serve each other? Are we gonna wash each other's feet? Chapter 13, just a couple verses from there. In this description of love, in verse 4, love suffers long. Keeps on serving others, even if others take advantage of you, don't appreciate it, maybe even take you wrongly and accuse you of wrong in doing it. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. It does not parade itself. It's not puffed up does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. And so, yes, I think the Apostle Paul who learned directly from the Lord Jesus himself, got the message. We're here to serve. We're here to wash each other's feet. We're here to give our lives for the good of others. And so when we partake in this ordinance this morning, let's let it remind us and let's commit again to doing our part. All right. We'll partake of the ordinance and... Uh, the song leader can keep us going with songs. <laughs>